All right, we've got a couple of announcements, actually six announcements. First of all, Camp Arete is coming up next week, so be in prayer for Camp Arete. That will be uh, Sunday through next Saturday, July 17th to the 24th, or maybe it's through next Sunday. And then Vacation Bible School is in the middle of next week, July 19 to 21. Men's Prayer Breakfast is not going to be our usual prayer breakfast, but we're going to have a meet and greet at the church next Saturday morning at 8 o'clock with Alexandra uh, Del Moral Miller, who is running for county judge. That's an important position. County judge is a weird term we have in Texas, but it is the highest authority in the county. So county judge is to the county what a mayor is to the city. So that's an extremely important role. And we know we've had a lot of problems with the one that's in there now. So uh, it's a good opportunity. And then I'm lining up uh, at least one other uh, candidate uh, <clears throat> for this next week um, so that we can be aware of these candidates. We're going to do the same thing again in August to get some others that I've been uh, talking with, trying to schedule things. So that's what's going on. Uh, Jay Collins Memorial Service is in a couple of weeks on the 30th. On Saturday at 11 a.m., Chafer Seminary registration begins August 1st, and pray for Jeff as he gets ready to go to Brazil um, in August, August 25th to September 5th. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so you can make sure you're spiritually prepared and ready to study the word this evening. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're glad we have your word to enlighten us as to reality, to illuminate our minds to truth as you've created it, as the architect of the universe, creator of all things. And Father, that you have breathed out your word so that we can have your word, your insight, your wisdom, your revelation, so that we can learn how to live in conformity to your will. We thank you for your grace that provides our salvation at no cost. And, Father, we thank you that uh, you have provided us with such a remarkable spiritual life with God the Holy Spirit indwelling us and filling us with your word that we may use it wisely in our lives. We pray that we can understand the things that we're studying this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to 1 John. And we're going to be connecting the dots on these 1 John verses again this evening. And I think it's a good idea if you have your Bible open so that you can connect the dots by drawing lines between verses, connecting, circling words, and also uh, just putting cross-references next to these key verses so that when you're reading through your Bible, that gives you some guidance I miss having a Bible with all my notes in it since somebody stole it last year because then I have to go back and rethink my way through everything. But that's okay. 
All right, so we're in Philippians, but we've come to verse 6, which uses the phrase, until the day of Jesus Christ, asking the question, well, what exactly does that refer to? We have uh, things such as the day of the Lord, uh, other phrases, uh, day of Christ, day of Christ Jesus, day of Jesus Christ. Uh, What does this describe? And we have it twice in our passage, verse 6 and verse 10. So we looked at this question, what does the Bible teach about the day of Christ? And what we saw is that this is different from the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord relates to this dark gray area, the tribulation. And of course, these are not drawn to scale. Okay. They're drawn so the words can fit. The tribulation is much smaller, but it will seem much longer and we won't be here. The day of the Lord refers to the, especially the end part of the tribulation, but probably includes all of the tribulation up to uh, and including the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming. But the day of Christ refers to that which ends the church age, the rapture of the church, which takes place in the blink of an eye, actually less than that, and it will immediately be followed by the judgment seat of Christ. And that we have studied in some detail going through key passages such as 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 3, or, or actually 7 through 9, uh, and uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, emphasizing the fact that at the end of the description of the judgment seat of Christ, we see that there are two types of, of believers at the judgment seat of Christ at the conclusion. There are those that have rewards and those that don't. But everyone that has trusted in Christ alone for salvation is saved. They are saved eternally and have eternal life. Now, there is another description of, it seems, a another classification or another word to describe those who have rewards, and that is this word, the overcomer. And I've pointed this out last time, and again this time, that there's some controversy over whether uh, every believer is an overcomer, which would mean it's part of what we get as our position in Christ, or whether overcomer describes this class of Christians at the judgment seat of Christ who receive rewards. Now, I had an interesting question that came in, uh, this last, uh, just a couple of days ago, and I can't remember now if I have a s- slide to, uh, yeah, I do have a slide, so we'll look at that. So we'll pick up on that question in a minute. So what does the Bible say about the overcomer? Well, Revelation 3.21, which is the last overcomer statement in Revelation 2 and 3, each of these seven letters to the seven churches ends up with a promise to those who overcome. And this is that there are those who overcome, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. This is Jesus talking, and he's talking about the fact that he will have a future throne because he says, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So the question that comes up is just exactly uh, what did Christ overcome? This is a term that uh, is related to the noun that we anglicize to Nike, but it is Nike or 
which means a victor, a winner, and it also has this sense of overpowering or gaining, uh, gaining victory. So what did Christ overcome when he says, as I overcame and sat on my father's throne? A lot of people will just jump to the conclusion that that must be the cross, but that is not how the phrase is used in Scripture. Christ overcame the world, John 16.33 says. He says these things, that is referring to what he's taught his disciples in John 13, John 14, John 15, and John 16, what's known as the Upper Room Discourse. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Now, that's an interesting phrase, because when he uses the phrase in me in this section, for example, at the beginning of John 15, he says, abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. So when Jesus talks about abiding or or being in me, he's talking about fellowship. He's not talking about uh, a position like when Paul talks about being in Christ. And we've studied that many times now in Ephesians that there we have received every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. These are blessings that belong to us as church-age believers because our position is in Christ. That's positional truth, our identification with Christ that occurs at the instant of salvation. But in John 15, it's talking about our experiential growth. Abiding in Christ is a term that is related to walking by the Holy Spirit and walking in the light or being in fellowship, walking in that partnership of fellowship with Christ. So he says, I've taught you these things, and that these things are not the gospel to be in Christ. The things he's been teaching all through this section is how to walk with him, how to abide in him. So he said, these things that in me you may have peace. In other words, that peace is not going to be a reality if you're not walking with by the Holy Spirit and you're not abiding in Christ. And remember when we get over to Galatians 5.16, which talks about walking by the Spirit, that when you walk by the Spirit, you're going to be, uh, the Holy Spirit's going to produce fruit in our lives of production, character transformation. And the fruit, the word fruit is singular. There's not fruits there, even though there are several characteristics of that fruit. The second of which, or the third of which is peace, love, joy, peace. And so Jesus says this peace is a result of being abiding in him uh, in the context. And he says in the world, now that's really interesting. We're in the world Jesus talks about in this passage, but we're not of the world anymore. We're distinct because we're believers. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Now, it's real easy to blow past that in the English, but the Greek grammar here is very important because he uses the a perfect tense of the verb there. It's a first-person singular, I, 
have overcome. So we could translate it, I have already overcome, because the perfect tense refers to completed past action. And sometimes it indicates the completion in the past. Sometimes it's it's emphasizing the present results of that completed past action. And here I think it's emphasizing that this is over and done with, and it's it's in the past. What is about to happen with Jesus after John 16? What happens in John 17? He has his high priestly prayer. What happens in John 18? John 18, he goes to he gets the Garden of Gethsemane. He gets arrested, and then he's crucified. Then you have the resurrection. So before he goes to the cross, Christ is crucified. Crucifixion deals with the sin penalty. Overcoming the world takes place before he takes care of the sin penalty. That tells us that that this is not a justification phase one uh, uh, conquering. It is a sanctification issue and that he deals with the world by the way in which he lived and applied uh, applied the word, and he did not succumb to the thinking of the world. Now, the, we'll talk about this as we go along, but Jesus is constantly confronted by the predominant worldview of the Jews at that time, which was the legalism of the Pharisees, but there's also the liberalism of the Sadducees, and he doesn't succumb to any of that. And so he has already won that aspect. He's He's overcome the world, so that's very important. Now, what we saw last time was there are these two views. That first view is that every true believer is an overcomer. That's a very popular, very common view. And the second view is only believers who advance in the Christian life are, are overcomers. And the reason that a lot of people think that every believer is an overcomer is the section in 1 John 5, 4, and 5, for all who have already been born of God overcome, I didn't take that S out of that one that time, uh, for all who have already been born of God overcome the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So is this talking about faith at salvation or faith in terms of the Christian life after salvation? And then verse 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And this is, uh, so the focal point here, some people say, well, this means salvation. But believing Jesus is the Son of God is not the gospel. Believing Christ died for our sins is the gospel, and that we have eternal life is a free gift. So believing Jesus is the Son of God, that was a problem that took place in, in among his readers because there was a lot of false teaching about the person of Christ. Those who emphasized just his humanity and denied his deity. Others uh, just emphasized his his uh, deity that he did uh, and and not his humanity. So it's believing that Jesus is who he said he was that is important. So we looked at this our chart on the three stages or phases of salvation. So stage one or phase one justification is belief in Christ's death for salvation. We believe 
he died for our sins. God imputes to us his perfect righteousness, and we're saved because we possess the righteousness of Christ. That happens in a second. But the rest of our life is a struggle. It's a battle. It's a spiritual war. We struggle with the invisible um, enemies that we have, the three major enemies, and we're looking at these some tonight, is the world, the cosmic system, the thinking of Satan, second, the flesh, which is the sin nature, and the third is the devil. So in the spiritual life, we have to learn to believe the scriptures, to use the faith rest drill, to trust God step by step. We walk by faith and not by sight. That's the basis for the spiritual growth. And then at glorification, we're finally uh, separated from our sin nature, and we go to be with face-to-face with the Lord. So the first phase, we're saved from the eternal penalty of sin. Second, we are saved from the power of sin. We still have a sin nature, but as we learn to walk by faith and not by sight, then we deal with our sin nature. And then last, we're saved from the presence of sin. So what's important is when it talks about faith, are we talking about faith at justification, faith for sanctification? Now, there's not faith for glorification because faith is evidence of things not seen. When we're face-to-face with the Lord, he's seen. So faith no longer operates once we get to heaven. So we have phase one, faith in Christ for salvation. Phase two, the focus is on trusting, uh, trusting God's word. Now, 1 John 5, 4, as I pointed this out last time, says, those who have already been born of God overcome the world. And that's this verb, nakao, which means to overcome, to gain victory, to win, to be victorious. And it's used uh, twice in these two verses. It says, all who have already been born of God overcome the world. And First John 5, 5, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, notice in this passage that the focal point of overcoming isn't the sin nature it isn't our spiritual, spiritually dead position, our alienation from the life of God. It is the world. And John sixteen thirty three, when Jesus said, I have overcome the world, it's the same structure. He's already overcome the world, and uh, it is the world that's the object of the overcoming. So we have this phrase that's so important Everybody focuses on looking at nakao and how that's used, but it's used in 1 John several places in relation to the phrase, um, those who have all who, that is, all who have been born of God, ganao. That's this uh, uh, perfect participle. And perfect participle means that it's past completed action again. So those who have been born of God, well, it looks like on the surface that this just refers to somebody who has trusted Christ and they're regenerate. But let's test that hypothesis and we'll discover there's a problem. So this perfect tense has completed action. It's used 10 times in 1 John. So this is very important to understand all the things that John says about the person who has already been born from God. So if all who have been born from God. Now, some of your translations have whatever, and 
And um, we'll look. I, I think I have a slide on this later on, but but don't worry about that. The the Greek word is the word pas, which just means all. The reason it was translated as whatever is because it's in the neuter. The problem, why didn't the Greek put it in another gender? They weren't gender confused. Because if you had put it a feminine gender, you'd be talking about whoever females. You'd be restricting it. If you put it in the masculine, you'd be whoever men believed. So you'd be restricting it to males. So when you're talking about male and female, Greek would use the the neuter uh, gender to describe a group. So it was translated in the King James as as for whatever, but that's just uh, that's English. That's not what the Greek says. The Greek literally says for all who have already been born uh, uh, of God. First uh, John two twenty nine says something else. Says if you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness has already been born of God. So what that means is only the person who has been regenerate can practice righteousness. And I use the word practice instead of do because there's a difference between these two different Greek words that are used. Sometimes the translators aren't consistent. But in 1 John 3, 9, we read, whoever has already been born of God does not sin. Now, I went through this last time, but we're going to cover some other verses and we have to remember what we went through last time. So I'm, I felt it was important to review this so we get it fresh in our minds. Whoever has already been born of God does not sin. That's a really strong statement. Whoever has been born of God, again, so if we take that to mean simple regeneration, we might have a problem. If has been born of God means simple regeneration, then no one regenerated can sin or sins. Now, that's pretty strong because that, that would indicate that, well, maybe none of us are saved. Because I don't know about you, but I know I've sinned at least more than once in the last hour. Okay? So if the one who's been born again does not sin, well, I've got a problem. So he, if he does not sin, is related to already been born again, born of God, then maybe what John means by this phrase is something more than simply being regenerated. First John four seven says, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, or love is from God." And everyone who loves is. Two things. Number one, born of God. That's our phrase using the verb ganao. Everyone who loves is one, born of God, and two, he knows God. Now, as I pointed out last time, we had this idiom that we use a lot. I hear it all the time. Do you know Jesus? What we mean in our evangelical idiom is, are you saved? Have you trusted in Christ as your Savior? But that's not how the Bible uses the term. So if you take an English idiom and you impose that on the meaning of Scripture, you end up with some bad theology. So only those who are born of God and who know God love. That tells us that this concept of being born from God and knowing God 
has to do with the spiritual life after salvation because it's talking about love, that those who are not saved can't love. It is something that presupposes two things, being born of God and growing spiritually. Love develops through spiritual growth. How do I know that? John fourteen seven through 9, Jesus has a conversation with, he's already having a conversation with Peter and Philip pipes in, all the disciples are there. And uh, Philip, uh, uh, Peter has asked, well, Lord, how do we, how do we know you? And uh, know the, how do we know the Father? And Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it's sufficient for us. So Jesus says to Philip, who is saved, he's been a disciple for three-plus years, and he is clearly saved. The only one who wasn't saved was Judas, and Judas got kicked out a little earlier that this evening. So he says to Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? So he's talking to a disciple who's been camping out with him, living with him, eating with him, uh, being in Bible classes with Jesus every day, and Jesus says, you don't know me, Philip. You're saved, but you haven't come to know me yet. You haven't grown enough spiritually to say that you, you know me. When we get to 1 John 2... John says, by this we know that we have come to know him. So there's a way we can test to see if we know Jesus. And the test is, are we obedient? Are we keeping his commandments? This is a commentary on what John, I mean, excuse me, what Jesus taught in John 14. Because later on, uh, John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So we have this connection here from John 14 that if we love Jesus, we keep his commandments. Here, uh, if we keep his commandments, it shows that we have come to know him. So coming to know him is going to enable us to grow so that we can love one another, and it indicates that we have come to know him in the process of spiritual growth. 1 John 2, 4, John says, the one who says, I have already come to know him, that's why I'm translating that perfect tense, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar and the truth is not in him. If you're living in disobedience and you're disobeying Christ, then you can't say that you've come to know him because you're not exhibiting that. So obeying his commandments is a is barometer for how well you know Christ and how well you can love. Verse 5 says, but whoever keeps his word. So keeping his word is the same as keeping his commandments. Whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been matured. By this we know that we are, and contextually it's we're in him, we're abiding in him. Now, we're connecting some dots here. This this will scramble your brains, but it's important. Reading through 1 John, John has these various key terms like uh, like loving, like uh, uh, keeping his commandments, like knowing him, 
And there, think of each of these, and there's about eight or ten of them at least, as threads. And so what he does is he's weaving a rope. So first he picks up one thread. If you, if we, we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. And so what happens is he takes that, lays down that thread. And then he says something else about, um, knowing him. Uh, that if you don't keep his commandments, then the truth isn't in you. And then he says, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love for God has been matured. So now he takes love for God and he takes that thread and he lays it over the first one. And he's beginning to weave these concepts together. And you just have to track them through through First John. So whoever keeps his word, the love for God has been truly matured. By this we know we're abiding in him. Now, let's skip over, because remember, we're focusing on that phrase related to ganao, being born of God. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. What is the love for one another and the love for God related to, from what we read in 1 John 2? It's related to keeping his commandments, which is related to knowing him. So now he's saying, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Notice what we've just seen. We've seen those two concepts of love for God and knowing God introduced in 1 John, 1 John 2, 3 through 5. So... Uh, it, as we look at that, we see that this is dealing with spiritual growth after salvation. We're not talking about salvation truth. One of the most important things to understand is that in the history of interpretation, First John, it, you know, most most books have various people thinking, well, there's two or three different main ideas and main themes, but First John seems to be fairly simple. You, it, most people either take it to refer to do two different kinds of Christians, those who are walking in the light, those who are abiding in Christ, those who are coming to know God and keeping his commandments, in contrast to those who are walking in darkness, even though they're saved, and they're not confessing their sins, and they're not obedient. You have two different kinds of Christians. We would call them uh, spiritual Christians and carnal Christians. You have two different kinds of Christians. Now, on the other side of the fence, the vast majority of of Christians think that this is talking about a contrast between believers and unbelievers. Believers know Christ. Unbelievers don't. Believers walk in the light, positional. Unbelievers don't. Now, this gets into a problem because contextually, John is always talking about either a believer who is walking in the light, confessing their sin, uh, obedient to Christ, growing in love, maturing, versus those that are not. They're walking in darkness. They're living like an unbeliever. And so when you get into these passages related to the overcomer, you have those that are thinking this is believer or unbeliever, they think of overcomer as the believer and the non-overcomer as the unbeliever. 
That's what that's the lordship salvation interpretation of First John. The non-lordship view that understands you're talking about two different kinds of Christians understand there are those Christians who aren't overcomers and those that are overcomers. Now, a problem we've gotten into because of the surface appearance of First John five four that those who are overcomers or those that believe Jesus is, is the Lord or Jesus is God, the problem there is that you've got free grace people who think that defines overcomer, and the result is they're taking a lordship interpretation that is in violation of the way John has structured these contrasts, and they're, they're violating that by the way they're interpreting overcomer. And I know that some have come into this position because the place that the word overcomer is used mostly, it's not a Pauline term. Paul uses the word, I think, twice, and it's not relevant to this context. It's John who uses the word all the time here in First John and in Revelation 2 and 3. Revelation 2 and 3, there's a well-known commentary by Bob Thomas, who is, it's an outstanding commentary, but I know from a private conversation that Bob Thomas held to at least a soft lordship position. That's what he said. He had no problems with the lordship salvation position. And so he's consistent. He takes the overcomer passages in Revelation 2 and 3 to be equivalent to just being a believer. Every, every believer is an overcomer and every overcomer is a believer. So there you have a problem. See, they're being theologically consistent. And I'm not, I didn't come to this by looking at this through a theological grid. I came to it by trying to figure out how John uses all of these different words. So in 1 John 4, 7, what we learn is only two things, only those born of God and who know God love. So this is uh, post-salvation spiritual growth. It's phase two. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. They're growing and maturing. So we had our summary. To know God is to have love for him, for God. Second, knowing him is not the same as believing in Christ as Savior. Third, knowing him is a process that begins at salvation or after salvation, split second later. Fourth, we have the example that Peter was saved, but he didn't know Christ in John fourteen nine. Fifth, therefore, a believer must come to know God, know his word, apply his word to come to love God, which in turn is manifested by biblical love for other believers. That's the process of overcoming. Sixth, so the immature believer does not yet know God or love God, which means the immature believer or out-of-fellowship believer still spends a lot of time loving the world. He hasn't overcome the world yet. Seventh, the believer who loves one another meets two prerequisites. He's born from God and he knows God, which is the, the, both are the way John is using it is that these are someone who's living as, as a born-again person. A born-again person can live like an unbeliever. And then 8, 1 John 3, 9 then tells us that, that for John, the one born from God is not merely someone regenerate, but someone who is living like a regenerated person. So then we go to 1 John 5, 18. 
Again, I've translated this more correctly. We know that whoever has already been born of God does not sin. Again, this is making a, a, a tough statement. Whoever has already been born of God does not sin, but he who has been born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. So again, we have this phrase, already been born of God, based on the participial form of ganao. And he is saying that if, and or no, the, the conundrum is, if has been born of God means simple regeneration, then a believer does not sin. And that means there's very few genuine believers. There's none. Because no believer is free from sin. And in addition, he keeps himself, and the wicked one does not touch him. That's a great promise related to eternal security. But I'm not going to go off onto that because we're dealing with another focal point here. What does it mean to not sin? Whoever has been born of God does not sin. But since we do sin, it has to mean something different from simple regeneration. It is comparable to what Paul talks about in Galatians 5.16, where, where he says, Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the sin nature. Now, the command is a present imperative, which means this is supposed to be a priority in the believer's life, to walk, to conduct your life by means of the Holy Spirit, in dependence of the Holy Spirit. What he says then is it will be impossible for you to fulfill it, fulfill the sin nature, the lust of the sin nature. And the reason I've translated this is it has a very distinctive grammar. It has this phrase, uh, u and me. U is a Greek negative, means no, and may is also a Greek negative that means no. Now, in English, if you take two negatives and put them together, you have a positive, but not so in Greek. In Greek, if you want to state something very strongly that it's impossible to do, you combine both words for no and you use a verb in the subjunctive mood. And that means it's impossible to do something. So this is why I'm always translating this. If you walk by means of the Spirit, it's impossible to fulfill the lust of the flesh, to bring it to completion. Now, you have to stop mentally somewhere. You flip the switch, and you stop walking by the Spirit, and now you're walking according to the sin nature. Those are the only two options according to this this whole section from 5.16 on down to about verse 23 or 24. Walk by means of the Spirit, and it will be impossible for you to fulfill the lust of the sin nature. John just says, if you're living like you're regenerate, you won't sin. But then when you live like an unbeliever, you quit walking by the Spirit, you're going to live like an unbeliever, and then you're, you're going to sin. So 1 John 3, 9, remember we looked at 1 John 5, 18, and now we're going to look at 1 John 3, 9, which says, whoever, again, all who have already been born of God, uh, do not sin. For his seed remains in him. Now, that word remain is the Greek word that Jesus used in John 15, where he talks about abide in me and um, 
if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you will bear much fruit. So the, in Galatians, the, the sole condition for the fruit of the Spirit is to walk by the Spirit. But in John 15, Jesus changes the metaphor around and says, if you abide in me, then you will bear much fruit. So the sole condition in John 15 is to abide in Christ. So if abiding in Christ is the sole condition for producing fruit and walking by the Spirit is the sole condition for producing fruit, then walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ are talking about the same thing. Okay? Now, because Paul and John are different people, Jesus was different, Jesus used different language. John was the beloved disciple. He was 19 years old when he was called by Jesus to be a disciple. And like a lot of 18, 19-year-olds, they are very attracted to their mentor, and they try to emulate their mentor. And if you try to read through the Gospel of John in John chapter 3, when Jesus starts off with his conversation with Nicodemus, and then by the time you get somewhere between verse 15 and verse 20, you realize that um, uh, who's talking here? Is John talking or is Jesus talking? And nobody really knows because you think somewhere in there Jesus quit talking and John's talking about Jesus, but you don't catch when it happened because John just talked like his mentor. Okay, so 1 John 3, 9, whoever has already been born of God does not sin. So we saw that already. This, this means that already been born of God has to mean something more than simply being regenerated. For his seed abides in him. That is, the word abides in this, in this believer. And so if you're abiding in Christ, Christ abides in you, then you're walking by the Spirit. You're not going to fulfill the lust of the flesh, and he cannot sin because he has already been born of God. So if has been born of God simply means regeneration, then no one regenerated can sin. He does not sin because he has been regenerated, and that's just not true. So what does it mean when it says we do not sin? In 1 John 3, 6, now let me take you back. Remember we were looking at 3, 9. Now we're going back three verses through verses to 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in me does not sin, Jesus said. Notice how he connects abiding in verse 6 to not sinning. And over here we saw that his seed remains in him, uses that same word abide. You've got to connect the dots. So in your Bible you would circle, because see the translator translates it abide in one place and remain in another. And in English, you don't see that they're the same word. And it's important that you see they're the same word. So 1 John 3, 6 says, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. And if you stop there, you say, oh, well, that seems to be talking about a believer versus an unbeliever. Sure it does, unless you've paid attention to the fact that known him is not talking about someone who gets saved. It's talking about somebody who has grown in their post-salvation experience, that they have grown and developed, and they they know Jesus, they love Jesus, and they're obedient to Jesus. So he's talking about a believer that's growing and maturing. Whoever abides in him does not sin, 
because he's walking by the Spirit. Whoever sins, that is on a continuous basis, living in carnality, has neither seen him nor known him. You're not growing. You may be saved and ending up in heaven, but you're not maturing. And then he goes on to explain it in 1 John 3.8. He says, he who sins is of the devil. Doesn't mean you're not saved. And you've got to trace this word all the way through 1 John. It means you're living in dark. You're walking in darkness, and you're living like the devil's own child instead of Christ. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains or abides in him. So we see that connection, that the one who has been born of God is the one. It it connects right there. The one who has been born of God does not sin. That's parallel to 1 John 3, 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. So abiding in him and being born of God is what John's talking about. He's not talking about somebody simply regenerated. He's talking about somebody who is walking by the Spirit and maturing and growing. Then we come to 1 John 5, 4. should be, for whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory the wor- uh, oh, I left something out. This is the, the this is the victory uh, over the world, our faith, and that's our word nikao again. Uh, who, whoever is born of God overcomes the world. This is talking present tense. This is the process of the spiritual life. This would be phase two, our spiritual growth. We are in the process of overcoming the world. Now, where do we find that statement in Scripture? That's Romans 12.2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we have both forms of the word here. The verb overcomes and then the noun nike uh, for victory that has overcome the world. And that's another form of the verb. So it's the focus here is the one who is has already been born of God and living like it, that this is what is characteristic of their life. They're overcoming overcoming the world. So we have to go, go to elementary question, what's overcoming the passage? What's overcoming the passage is overcoming the world. What did Jesus overcome in John 16, 33? He overcame the world. He had already overcome the world. Overcoming the world was not related to his work on the cross. So now we have to ask the question, what exactly is the world? This is the Greek word cosmos, where we get our word for cosmetics. Uh, We get the word um, cosmology related to the study of the universe and the organization of the cosmos. All of these come from this word. And I use this word with a K to describe the devil's system of thinking. It's cosmic thinking. Now, that confuses people the first half a dozen or more times that you that you use it. Um, I remember when we had a young former meteorologist in his last year of seminary coming to Baraka Church for his pastoral internship, 
And he spent a lot of time teaching the adult Sunday school class, which was between the first service and the second service. And he kept talking about cosmos diabolicus, Latin. I didn't have a clue what he was talking about. Of course, you know, that's Charlie Clough. And he was just going right. But that was the language that that Lewis Berry Chafer used in uh, talking about this in his systematic theology. And that is a great way to distinguish worldliness. It's not just too many people think worldliness is dressing a certain way or acting a certain way or not doing certain things. But worldliness is a way of thinking. And it has to do with order or structure of something. So it's basically the order or structure of Satan's thinking. His arrogance, he was totally arrogant toward God and he wanted to be independent of God. So because he was arrogant and wanted to be independent of God, he was also antagonistic to God. So arrogance and antagonism uh, describe Satan's thinking. So we go back to our diagram on the three phases of salvation It's phase two that deals with worldliness. Don't be conformed to the world. It's not something that's, the world is not something that's dealt with at the cross. Jesus overcame the world before he went to the cross. So these are not things that are associated with Christ's justification work on the cross. So in John 16, 33, going back to this, These things I've spoken to you that in me, that is abiding in me, that's the context from John 15, you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. That's a promise. That's not one of those promises that usually makes the promise books. Jesus says in the world you will have tribulation. We don't want to hear that. Uh, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have perfect tense, already overcome the world. So by overcoming the world, Jesus completes this action. So what did Christ overcome? Before he went to the cross, he overcame the cosmic system, these, these, the pressure to conform to the culture around you, the belief system of, of the human viewpoint thinking that was there. There's, there's the influence of the Greco-Roman world with its polytheism. There's the influence of the liberal Sadducees who've denied anything supernatural in the Pentateuch. They've rejected the rest of the Old Testament. You have the legalism of the Pharisees who are just concerned with external obedience and not an internal transformation. So these are your, your a lot of different dynamics going on in terms of, of different forms of worldliness, and Jesus doesn't yield to any of that pressure. So he overcomes the world, which shows that he's qualified then to go to the cross. That's why it's perfect tense. He's completed that part of his mission, but it didn't have anything to do with with paying for our sins. Now, in Reformed theology, Calvinism, Lordship theology, you have Jesus' active suffering and passive suffering. The passive suffering is his suffering in terms of his life. That his life, they, they they claim that Jesus' life is redemptive. No, it's not. 
It is Jesus' death on the cross when he pays the penalty. That's the only thing that's redemptive. So what's happening when Jesus' life is he's demonstrating how we should live the, the, the Christian life. So world or worldliness is different from sin. Is there sin in worldliness? Sure there is. But it's a, it's a different category of, of, of problem in, in the Scriptures. So on the cross, Jesus paid the sin penalty, but he had already conquered the world system. So in his life, he overcame the thinking of the world, setting the precedent for our victory over the thinking of the world so that we can learn to think as Christ thinks. We have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. So we can think as Christ thought. That's the whole idea. We are not to be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Thus, overcoming the world is after salvation. It's post-salvation, phase two function of spiritual growth, not positional truth in Christ. We are not all overcomers. So we have three enemies in the Christian life. We have the devil who is outside of the world. We have the world system, which are the thought systems of the world. And then we have our internal enemy, our own sin nature. This is Romans 12.2, which I've been quoting several times already. Do not be pressed into the mold of the thinking of the world. That's the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind or the renovation of your thinking that you may demonstrate that God's will is good and acceptable and perfect. So that word pressed into the mold is the word suskematiza, uh, which means to mold something, to force it into a, to conforming to a particular pattern. And instead of being pressed into the mold of the world, and that pressure is always there, we are to be a transformed metamorpho. We're changed from one form or image to another. This is talked about in slightly different language by James. It's interesting how each writer uses words a little differently than other writers. James said, talking about the wisdom of the world, he says, the world, the, this wisdom does not descend from above. Its source is not in God, but is earthly. Now, you may say, well, why didn't he use cosmic there or, or worldly to make sense? Because in, in Greek, you would contra when you're talking about something above and below, above is heaven, below is the earth. That's the typical way in which that is, is handled. For example, in Philippians, oh, I put 4.19 there. In Philippians 3.19, Paul says, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. So these, these, this relates to the thinking like, of, of, for John, it would be related to the earth dwellers of Revelation. You know, those who are opposed to God and to the coming of Christ. So the first descriptor of wisdom is, of human wisdom, is it's earthly. It's also sensual. That's not a good translation at all. It's the Greek word sukikos, only used three key times in Scripture, and none of them are translated correctly. It comes from suke, meaning soul, 
and uh, that the suffix indicates soulish or soul-like. It's contrasted in 1 Corinthians 3 with pneumaticos, spiritual. And it has the idea of the thinking of the unbeliever, the thinking that is tied to the earthly, tied to the world system. It is the opposite of thinking the way the Holy Spirit would have us to think. And so it, 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 these are descriptors for worldliness. It's tied to the earth. It is related to the person who is spiritually dead and hasn't been regenerate yet. He doesn't have a human spirit. He is soulish. And so he's buying into one form of worldview or another. He's a, a polytheist. Uh, he's a naturalist, meaning there's nothing supernatural. Everything just occurs in time plus chance. Evolution is a product of naturalistic worldview. Deism, existentialism, um, I've got that twice, postmodernism, or today you have people who just mix everything up to, uh, all, all together. So it's just a, it, it, it's a mishmash. So the, and the third descriptor is it's demonic. Human viewpoint thinking is really demonic viewpoint thinking, which is really Satan's way of thinking. That's the bottom line. So all paganism is Satan's way of thinking because paganism worshiping false gods, Deuteronomy tells us that the false gods are the inventions of the demons and the demons are the ones who empower the idols. Now, we live in such a secular, anti-supernatural reality that that's, that's a bizarre thought for a lot of people. But if you are a Muslim, if you are a, uh, a Mormon, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, all of these people are worshiping false gods. If you're in India with a thousand different gods, that's obvious. But every one of these gods are empowered by a demon. Allah is empowered by a demon. You know, the, the God of, of uh, Jehovah's Witnesses is not the God of the Bible. That's a heresy. Uh, the gods of Mormonism. And who are the gods of Mormonism? Well, they're former creatures. Because their little saying is, as, as you are, God was. As God is, you will be. So you have all these different gods, really, in Mormonism, and they were former humans. So that brings us to uh, where we need to study worldliness, because Christ overcame the world. So I think we can start there next time. I think I have about 30 more slides, so we're not going to get there tonight. So we'll just stop here and come back next time and talk through worldliness. because, And then we're going to come back and we're going to connect more dots in First John to wrap all this up to show that overcoming cannot refer to every believer. It must refer to those who are living in light of their, um, uh, of their regeneration. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the word and that we can apply this, being challenged to live in light of our spiritual life, our spiritual birth, our new identity uh, in Christ. Father, we pray for each of us that we might uh, be diligent in seeking to apply your word to our thinking and to our living it's very difficult. Everybody has different circumstances and situations, but we need to focus on that which has eternal value. And the only way to have that produced in our lives is to walk by the Spirit, to abide in Christ, walk in the light, walk in the truth. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us in the inner man 
that we might be able to uh, apply these things and see the Holy Spirit transform us into the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.